Hi everyone, producer Hannah here. Before we start the show, we just wanted to let you know that today's podcast recording of After Dark was recorded by a live stream and we encountered some slight internet dropouts. We apologize for any audio glitches and hope you enjoy the show. Hello everyone, my name is Amy Kelly. I'm the director of EMEA Marketing here at User Testing, the leading human insight platform. We are so happy to be sponsoring the Live FS After Dark event for the second year in a row today. For anyone that is new to user testing, our solution helps fintech organizations fully understand their target audience, supporting from the early discovery phase to understand product market fit, all the way through to detailed usability testing to ensure a seamless customer experience. We work with top fintech organizations across the globe to help them build experiences with confidence and build empathy for their customers. As we're seeing now more than ever before of how much customers value those organizations that showcase genuine customer empathy and understanding via their fintech products. We work with professionals that look to find human insight at scale from designers to researchers to founders and C-level executives. What sets us apart is our expansive panel of testers worldwide and speed of insights. So if you're looking to understand your target audience in different countries, we can help you gain those insights quickly to help you scale your fintech and build products that people love. We hope you enjoy the show and we look forward to connecting with you all. Have a great day. and welcome to Fintech Insider After Dark. My name is David Breer. In this, uh, I think it's our fourth Digital After Dark, we want to look at what we're calling the new world order. But don't worry, this isn't another show about post-pandemic shifts. I think nobody really wants to talk about that anymore, do we? Uh, innovation is well and truly happening faster than ever before, and Fintech continues to be at the absolute forefront of it. From having all of your needs in one app to ever-changing banking business models, people's wants, habits, and understanding really of what technology actually is, is dramatically changing. And the fintech industry is really ahead of the game when it comes to that. We're going to be discussing three topics that really have stood out over this period, namely, who is really at the steering wheel when it comes to innovation? Is this really the age of the super app? And what are some of the new business models that we've come through or will come through over the next couple of years. Uh, just to kick off the show, though, uh, this is going to be all about innovation and change, something that's been made possible through companies really embracing digital. Before we get started, we want to share with you what that really means to 11FS and how we define what truly digital is. So let's hear from one of our co-founders, Mr. Jason Bates, first. Welcome to Fintech Insider After Dark. I'm Jason Bates. I've been launching challenger banks and fintech ventures for the past eight years, and I talk with clients every day about the changes that are happening in our industry, the move to truly digital. But what does that mean? There are four key points that I revisit all the time, and I'd like to give you my cheat sheet. Firstly, digital is different. Until now, branch, phone, letter, they've all been communications channels to talk with some proxy bank teller. You request information, ask for a transfer, change some details. It doesn't matter how you communicate, it's all the same thing. We can digitize those channels and put a statement or a form on a small black screen, but digital isn't just a way of interacting with a proxy bank teller. It's more equivalent to a private banking team focusing solely on looking after you and your account. It's intelligent, real-time and contextual. It's the promise of a 10 times better personalization for 10 times lower cost. The second thing we talk about is how this shift moves us from just selling commodity products to delivering intelligent services. 
In banks, we've had the product and distribution organizations for hundreds of years. I provide you with a financial product, a statement, the ability to transact, and you do the rest. Digital services looks at that rest. What are the brutal realities of customers' lives? What are they really trying to achieve? It's not about the statement, but a question of whether I can balance saving for a house, a holiday, a wedding, and the big bills and the fun night out. We're seeing clusters of services emerge around everyday bills banking, discretionary accounts, mid-long-term finances, and particularly in the US, services aimed at specific communities who share an identity. The third thing is that there are specific financial services that really belong at the point of need. You'll always need to manage your day-to-day finances, but payments, escrow, instalment lending, and purchase insurance really belong where you're making the transaction as part of a non-financial journey, whether that's buying a holiday, getting a plumber out, or buying a house or car. That's the future split in retail financial services. From a consumer perspective, we're either going to be using our intelligent banking service or using finance that's embedded in a different digital journey. Which brings us on to our fourth point. The digital shift combined with regulatory and market forces is now splitting apart the traditionally monolithic bank into new platform layers. And and that's probably the most important change that's driven by the other three. It's how the market's restructuring, and it's the thing that's going to change your strategy. So what is this new stack? So we've got the rails at the bottom, whether that's payment schemes that are being open to non-bank participants, Alipay or crypto assets, providing an alternative to bank or card schemes. Above that is the product layer, where we, and that deals with financial products. It's regulated. You make money there with net interest margin and fees. It's super lean, mean, and specialized. No sprawling back office and aging mainframes. Goldman Sachs, ClearBank. This is the layer of banking as a service. Above that is the services layer, and that's where it gets digital, where the relationship with consumers and customers sits. It's being split out from the product layer by open banking, and this is where the intelligence services are delivered, and players make money on freemium, premium, subscriptions, ads, and affiliate fees. Yolt, Snoop, even Chime, you might say, live at that layer. Although having said that, you'll also see digital banks that combine the products and services layer looking for that Apple-like vertical integration. And finally, right at the top, we've got the journeys layer, and that's where Klarna and Stripe provide the tools. And the big retailers, car companies and realtors will start to embed uh, the point of need financial services, driven by the rise of API-based business models. So digital is different. And with digital services, APIs, open banking, and the new rails that are coming along, we're seeing this new market structure evolve that's really going to change the competitive landscape. It's going to be an exciting time. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Jason. Uh, We have a range of fantastic speakers for you here today. So to keep us all a bit more organized than we usually are, we're joined by an amazing moderator. Everybody, please welcome Lou Smith, the Chief Digital Officer at Lloyd's. Lou, welcome to After Dark. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. You do know, though, that picture's like about 12 years ago now. (laughs) uh, Thank you. You and me both. I mean, quite quite frankly, I've only been shaving the front of my head for the last year. So, like, there's a, there's a ponytail. No, there's not really. I'm I'm joking. But uh, <laughs> life life, uh, life has been pretty odd, isn't it? But uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, how, how have you been? You're good. I'm really good, David. Enjoying the weather. I'm dressed for Edinburgh. 
Landed in London yesterday, got the wardrobe wrong. So that's why I'm in a jacket and you're not. So. <laughs> Indeed. Well, uh, on that note, do you know what? I'll hand over to you, Lou, and uh, I will see you all later for the roundtable. Um, thanks, David. So firstly, massive thank you for inviting me along. I am super excited to be part of After Dark. And there are some incredible people, as always, that this team seems to corral together. So um, I'm looking forward to exploring the topics that we've set out. So uh, is the age of the super app here? And then something that's pretty close to my heart, which is around what are the new business models uh, coming out and emerging, which I think is pretty important as we come out of the pandemic. So um, without further ado, we are going to kick off with Sarah and Dan, and we're going to explore the topic of who is at the steering wheel of innovation and I will do my best to fulfill the outcome that David set out in order, which uh, is something I've never been able to do. So, uh, Sarah and Dan, welcome. Hello. Thank you. Hello. Um, so, how are you both? Sarah, shall we kick off with you? How's things going? What's happening in your world? Um, it's good. It's warm, as it is in most of the UK right now. Um, I'm slightly nervous on being this side of the panel. I'm, I'm usually in your seat, so I'm slightly scared. <laughs> I remember when you asked me some questions about the virtual room about, was it nearly a year ago now? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. it must have been. Must yeah, it feels, feels too long ago. And Dan, the voice for radio, how are you? Doesn't that mean I'm ugly, Luke? Jesus. No, <laughs> um, no I'm very well. As I was just telling you, I, uh, my wife is due today, so I'm sort of uh, anxiously looking at my phone, wondering if we're going to be interrupted with a, a new arrival. Don't you worry if it does. Sarah's got it. All good. David, I'll step in. We've got you back. No problem at all. So we're going to explore the topic of who is at the steering wheel of innovation. So let's kick off with some initial thoughts. So, Sarah, shall we kick off with you? Yeah, sure. Um, I think it's an interesting question because it depends where you are and what kind of organisation you're in. I think the answer that we all want to hear is that innovation should be driven by customers' needs, expectations, um, and, and that should really be at the heart of every business that's trying to, to you know, that is a customer-centric business. Um, I think, unfortunately, we are still at the stage where some potentially larger but definitely older organizations, um, innovation is still a thing that happens in a room with a separate team that may, in fact, be on a different site, um, driven by some people at the top who chuck buzzwords at them. And that, you know, it, it, we need to move on from that. Um, so I think I think my answer would be it depends who you are, it depends where you are, but I think at this point we do actually have quite a good idea of where we where we want it to be. Excellent. It's one of those things, isn't it? Well, because it is the right answer, but it's it's something that needs to feel lived, not spoken, really, doesn't it? Which is always quite tricky in terms of what should or how. Dan, what's your thoughts, just building on Sarah's views? Yeah, I, I mean, to me, it sort of, it appears pretty clear that we're in this middle of a sort of maybe two or three decade period of, you know, a super cycle of digitization. And so we're seeing these sort of emergent digital winners in, in many categories who have successfully, you know, innovated on consumer experience and therefore taken over, whether that's Google in search or Facebook in the social graph or whatever else. So I, I do think, I think... I sort of I agree with Sarah, but it feels like we're perhaps sort of on the leading edge of a change where the decisions yeah. that consumers make and the, the the choices in terms of the the companies they interact with actually like have more leverage in in more directly influencing the the R and D roadmaps of uh, of the companies of today than perhaps was true ten or twenty years ago. 
Yeah, can I just, I, I want to come back to, we're in a world at the moment, are we, where, and um, Janine, who's coming up later, reminded me just yesterday that actually we're seeing greater levels of adoption in terms of, um, and some of that's because we've had to, but also what we're seeing is also increased levels of trust. So does that drive a different answer here in terms of, if you look at what Nesta reported on about halfway through last year, where they said we've seen an increased adoption of um, technologies, people starting to lean to an opportunity to sort of galvanise or accelerate off the top of that. And if so, where, what, or what views do you have of that? Or do you have a completely different view and would you challenge that? So, Dan, let's go with you this no, way. Because I, I just love you. It's been pointed out to me now. No. I'm just going to keep going with it. Don't identify me like this. It's horribly inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I think you are spot on. Um, and I think, listen, I guess I think of the financial services, I mean, it's a lot of things, right? It's infrastructure, it's, a, it's how we express trust, it's how we contract, it's how we peddle influence. Um, and so I think, you know, as, as digitalization uh, sort of leads the charge and consumers feel more comfortable using online products, of course, like financial services is going to follow, whether that's in a centralized form, embedded finance, decentralized, whatever it might be. So, so no, I think I think we are we've certainly sort of hit an inflection point in in trust. I, I, yeah. think, I do think there are different forms of trust. I think there is trust that things are going to work, and I think there's trust that the company has your back. And I think we're still. I think we people start have started to believe that the uh, the new companies, uh, the, the sort of digital insurgents, have their back. I still am not sure all consumers believe that the thing's actually going to work every time when they need it to. And that's a thin line, isn't it, in terms of that line of trust? And if it doesn't work, if I can't do what I did yesterday, or if something goes wrong, and how quickly we respond, that trust can easily be reversed. And I exactly. think it's really, yeah, I totally agree, Dan. Sarah, what are your thoughts? I mean, I um, this is an area that I kind of feel quite strongly about having just spent the earliest part of this year writing a white paper on trust and building and maintaining trust in, in digital services. Um, and I think it's interesting. I think, yes, we trust in digital services is increasing, but I still think we have a certain percentage of people who um, feel almost strong-armed into having to use digital versions of services because of the circumstances of the last sort of 18 months or so. Um, and I think, you know, there's, there's two sides to that. One, those people um, that may not may not necessarily trust what they're doing they just have to do it that way because there's no other way to get around it and I think we really need to focus on helping those people better understand the advantages of using digital services and also you know maintaining trust is something that I think people forget about because I think you can win trust, but it's not a one-off thing. You have to keep working at it over and over again. Like trust is, is a relationship, but, you know, as, as to your point, Lou, you do one thing wrong and the whole thing's gone. You have to start again. Um, so I think we have a lot more people using digital services. I think we do have a greater number of people who trust them in the sense that they previously were people who hadn't actually tried it. So how would they know if they trusted it or if it would work because it hadn't occurred to them? Now they've been forced to try it. It's working for them. Okay, great. But I think there is still a percentage of the population, um, you know, wherever you are, who still don't necessarily trust it. They just feel that they have to do it this way. And if anybody to open up a, brand, a bank branch for them tomorrow, they'd be running down there and, and queuing outside, you know, for 40 minutes to get in just because that's what they knew. Um, and it made them feel secure and safe and they trusted it. Um, let's just come back to then in terms of if the, if the answer should be customer need and expectations could you give me a sense of both of you who's doing this well, but actually where are you seeing it not being driven from that? I know that's probably slightly sensitive, but let's see if we can explore 
where you don't have to give anything away, Sarah, but just let's explore <laughs> the sort of theory of where it's not working just so that we can see how that kind of changes as we kind of move forward. So, Sarah, what's your thoughts on that? Um, I think that the obvious one to me, without naming any any brand names, is when organisations are rolling out technology for the sake of it, and the one that really gets me at the moment is chatbots. So people will seem to think chatbots are very trendy. They think it's a way to like cut costs. And nine times out of 10, right, well, not nine times out of 10, that's a little exaggeration, but a lot of the time they don't really work. Um, and the, it, it's kind of, it's innovation for innovation's sake. And the customer need is not a chatbot. The customer's need is not to be able to type something into the box. The customer need is get me access to my money or give me, you know, give me my pin, um, help me resolve this this unspecified transaction. And I think that's what really frustrates me. It's when you get technology launched for the sake of it without thinking about what, and very, very old, you know, terminology, what problem it might solve. But what is the customer actually trying to achieve and how does technology help you do that? Rather than just going, oh, well, everyone else has got a chat, but we should get one of those. You know, just because everybody else has got one doesn't necessarily <laughs> mean it's a good idea. It sounds a little bit like that thing that everyone's parent used to say to them was, well, if everybody else jumped off a cliff, would you do it? You know, it's not necessarily the, the way to focus resources to get the best outcomes. I totally agree with you and chatbots. That's why I laughed as soon as you said it, because I've been on the end of, well, everybody else has got one. So should we be doing it? And also it's badged as AI. That's always, we're AI in it. So that's always one of my uh, my favourites. But I think I think your point is actually well made. We're still driven to some extent, or you still see too many emerging models where it's still driven by a solution, a technology solution, rather than actually what is the customer really wanting to do? Usually, in the context or example that you've articulated, they probably need help. And actually, how do you respond to something super quick that, you know, you can actually, you know, triage or get to an answer in the right way, or if it's an emotionally connected conversation, get me to somebody who can speak to me. So I totally agree with you. Dan, what are your thoughts around where you're seeing some good stuff or where you're seeing awesome your bugbears, maybe? Yeah, I, I guess my, my mind immediately goes to, I guess, my, my home turf, if you like, of the, the home purchase experience, which yeah. I mean, has, again, seen some pretty rapid digitization during COVID as, you know, for a few months there, we weren't even allowed to sort of visit houses to, to value them and so on and so forth. So yeah. I think... I think it's an interesting example there of where, like, you know, the housing market is fundamental to the economy, fundamental to people's, uh, you know, lives, top of, you know, sorry, bottom of Maslow's pyramid, all of that stuff. So it was never going to stop uh, in a pandemic or in, under any other circumstances. Um, and we saw some really, like, positive steps forward in how housing transactions uh, were conducted online, whether that be digital signature or using automated uh, valuation models. But I think... In a similar way to, to many of these other legacy markets, you, you, you reach this awkward point where there's some really cool digital stuff on the front end that allows consumers to improve their comprehension or to smooth the road to the transaction. Yeah. And then at some point you hit the like the legacy reality, whether that's from a regulatory perspective, whether that's the incumbents, whether that's the fact that you need Hackney Council to give you a drainage search, which is going to take 150 days, even though your mortgage was approved in real time. Um, so I think it's, um, it's interesting, like that you, when you step back from it, you're like, we kind of need to burn all of this down and start again to make like fundamental change. But the reality is we're going to have to find bridging technologies that allow us to continue to serve the customers and keep these fundamental markets like um, alive and progressing on the way to a, a better and brighter future. Yeah, I totally agree with you, actually. And your industry is a really interesting one. 
uh, probably the one I'm in as well at the moment, because I do still think that actually we'll see much of this um, being driven in insurance and asset management mm-hmm. over the next couple of years, I think, and all to the points that you've actually also raised. So just coming into the last few minutes of this section, um, so what what are you seeing then, or what do you think, or give us a bit of a view about what you'll see emerge uh, not necessarily, because I think some of this stuff was being done anyway. I just think some of it's been accelerated. So I think we need to be careful that we don't attach everything to uh, where we are right now. But what what do you see coming out or what do you think some of the builds are or what would you like to see coming out over the next sort of couple of months? Do you mean technology-wise or do you mean sort of conceptually? Connected to customer, actually. So what I would like to see is um, more organizations operating holistically and not not sort of taking there's, there's so much of this that group does this and that group does that and that group does this and you get this kind of disjointed approach to to innovation and but particularly to serving customers so the end customer sort of really only has one touch point and so many things that can go on go on behind that just sort of get forgotten about and, and, and to my earlier point what i would like to see is more organizations realizing that that customer can be affected by any of the layers within your organization not just the person on the end of the phone or, or, or the app or whatever it is so to see organizations bringing customer centricity all the way through and for every decision to be going okay well how does this benefit our customers because if it doesn't benefit our customers why are we doing it there will be some decisions that need to be because it makes us more efficient and we need to cut costs but that shouldn't be at you know at the expense of 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 serving customers it 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 should be in my mind symbiotic and i know that's easy to say and very hard to do (laughs) no i think it's a really important thing and i think what and also i mean sorry you and i've had a conversation before but what i I think, and you guys are brilliant at, is that layered view of it is about also making some of the tough calls about what do you not do, even when potentially those are some brave decisions. So I think some of the things I'm hearing from you around some of that, thinking about that layered all the way through into your people, focused on the customer, through to your solutions, but also making sure that people navigate through that in in terms of what you not do, which I think is really important. Um, Dan, just coming to you, what would you like to see, um, whether it's in your own industry or or broader? Yeah, so I guess it appeals to me that there's this sort of continuum of complexity, if you like, of of the things we're trying to do online. So, you know, for 20 years now, we've been ordering toothpaste online. That's a commodity. If you want it, you buy it, it gets delivered. And sort of, you know, we then progress to, I guess, booking flights and hotels um, and at this point now, partially driven by COVID, we're like we're into like the really, really hard stuff. So like, you know, getting medical help online, uh, doing housing transactions online. And, and the thing that really strikes me a little back to our first point is, um, is this the fundamental importance of trust? So consumers now, if they're going to engage in these kind of activities online, they want to seek out professional advice, uh, whatever vertical it might be in. Um, but they also want to be able to, you know, do their own research, uh, reach their own conclusions, you know, harness the wisdoms of crowds to kind of, you know, verify that the advice they're getting is correct. And I think, you know, I guess just historically, like we've always had such a focus on speed and convenience on the Internet. As long as we've got everything available and we can get it done as quickly as possible, that's got to be the right thing. But I actually think like quality of customer interaction, like levels of real trust, real dialogue, real kind of mutual comprehension being built. I think that's actually like a little bit more of a undiscovered country for tech. And I think it's going to be 
you know, if we're going to be successful in these higher touch, higher sophistication interactions, like we're going to have to take a, a big leap uh, in that direction over the next uh, the next few years. Yeah, it's um, it's quite interesting listening to you both talk because actually you start to think that maybe innovation is more around that purpose, culture, and behaviour. There are no. Uh, David talks about it a lot, but actually it feels like if we can get that connected right uh, to expectation matching, actually, and build some of that trust out in the way that you've articulated is probably where we need to focus. But in the last few seconds, can I thank you both uh, for your time, Sarah? It was nice to be on the other side of this <laughs> with you <laughs> and uh, uh, really appreciate both um, your your views on where we go next and what we do, but also um, where it doesn't work, which I think is also important. So thanks, Sarah, and thanks, Dan, and good luck uh, as uh, for uh, your impending birth of your child. So <laughs> that's pretty exciting uh, moving forward. But thank you both. Really appreciate it. Yes, and good luck. Thanks, Hope so. your wife is okay, Dan. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So... Um, we are going to move swiftly into our next panel. And the question we're going to be exploring this time with Jason, uh, who you've already seen on the video, so uh, no doubt he will cover some of the points uh, that he's also talked about. So we're going to be covering here, is the age of the super app here? That's actually quite tricky to say which I didn't realise until then. <laughs> so apologies if that didn't quite come out right. So Jason and Neri, am I saying your name right, Neri, just before I, I get that wrong for a bit? Yeah, that's absolutely fine. Yeah, yeah so uh, hi both. How are you? Very, Very good, thank you. Always good to see you both. Well, good to see you as well, Jason. Nice we haven't seen each other for a little while and nice to meet you, Neri. So let's get going straight away. Is the age of the super app here? Jason, kick us off. Well, I guess we have to start with defining, like, what is a super app? And for me, there's two angles to this. You know, the first is the what we've seen in the East, where the super app is less of a, of a point solution that's then grown and is more of a proxy operating system. So you look at WeChat, you look at Alipay, and essentially they're just a, you know, uh, they started on Android. They grew this massive set of services that where you could book restaurants, pay for things, you know, find local stores, do do lots of things. But it was actually almost like a, a proxy OS above the, the Android operating system that moved directly across to iOS. So I think in the East, you've got these sort of proxies where Apple couldn't really refuse them, you know, access the platform, given that, is it like half or two thirds of China are, are on this thing? So I think there's that route. And then there's the other route, which is you're super successful in a niche and you start to grow that niche out and actually go from, you know, Amazon selling books to Amazon being, you know, the yeah. mega super retailer. And so I think I, I'd like, almost like to draw the distinction there. And Neri, just give us your views, because firstly, I'm actually quite pleased we kicked off with a, what does it actually mean? And does everybody have the same view about it? Because I doubt we do. So Neri, do you want to kick off with your views about what is the super app and any thoughts to build on Jason's? Yeah, look, I think uh, I, I, I tend to agree with Jason. And I think the word super app these days gets um, overused and tends to group too many things. And um, the way we see it as Tinkoff is very much like the second uh, 
option that Jason put out there where we started with financial services. And then if we want to, you know, we've already acquired a customer, we've already incurred some kind of acquisition cost. And we want to make sure that relationship lasts as long as possible. One, because the customer is happy to use us and has some what we call jaw-dropping experiences through, through us. Uh, and also because you know financial services by themselves are not necessarily the most uh, engaging in, uh, of products. Um, if you have an app where you can only check your balance uh, and send money to your, to your mom, you're not going to use it very frequently. Um, and so we started going through the super app route um, about a couple of years ago. And um, the way we see a super app um, is composed of four main, uh, main blocks, let's say. First, you need to have an umbrella app that already has a fair amount of traffic on it. So, you know, we have 15 million customers in Russia, about 11 of them are monthly active users. So that already has some critical mass where you can start thinking about doing more stuff with that app. Um, the second one is some kind of marketplace. And I think here's where most uh, yeah. most divergence because you can go all the way to buying you know, medical goods and, um, and just be more limited to maybe booking a restaurant, right? So, but you need to have some kind of diversification away from the financial services. You need to have the ability to pay for all of this seamlessly within the app with a single sign-on. Again, making sure that it's more than just an aggregation of services or a conglomerate of services, but that it's really all well linked together. Uh, and then I think one element which often gets overlooked, but I think in our case, it's extremely important, it's content. So actually providing reasons for people to go into the app and actually learn something. So, you know, we have a business called Think of Journal. It's a personal finance magazine yeah. with lots of content that we push to our customers and tailor it. And I think if you have those four blocks, you can not only... Um, grow your engagement with your uh, your customer base and have them more loyal because you provide really good services, but also eventually you can actually monetize those customers over a longer period of time. So Jason, just help me understand then, what would be in it for the customer? So why? So help, let's answer the why and also um, exploring some of what Neri started to talk about, which is not only do you want me to enter as a customer, but also stay within that ecosystem or within that area or within that boundary so help me understand what's shifting in customer land that well, gives us the purpose i think neri put it very well you know we're going from and we talk 11fs all about this most of the time we're moving from that commodity product and distribution of a current account a loan and a, a mortgage to to the intelligent services that layer on top that actually do things for people and that's where financial services hits your your day-to-day -day life. Uh, I think there's an interesting question as to, well, how big can you go and how varied yeah. does that does that get? Because apps are only so big uh, and there's only so many um, tabs you can fit and um, uh, embedded and nested hierarchies of, of, um, of user interface you can do before people just start getting lost. So I tend to, to think that actually the, the successful apps, even the most successful super apps, tend to focus on a particular customer context. So if that's discretionary spending around my everyday stuff, then booking a restaurant fits, uh, maybe going on a holiday fits, uh, paying for a taxi fits, peer-to-peer -peer payments fit. But actually there are a whole swathe of things that just don't fit because they, I don't know, long-term financial planning, does that fit in the same app? It doesn't feel like the right context. And so um, there's a connected line of logic here, which is, is that we're seeing um, large banks around the world uh, change their 
organizational models around customer contexts rather than product lines. So no longer head of current account, head of lending, head of mortgages, but actually head of everyday spend, head of house and home, head of something else. And I think we'll see apps start to, to follow that route rather than becoming infinite supermarkets where you know suddenly people are adding weird and wonderful things onto, onto something that just doesn't really fit in that context. It's, um, it's quite interesting. I know you talked about in your video about journeys, end-to-end journeys, but I actually prefer organising around customer context. I think that's pretty key because it also helps you focus on what you're not because I think sometimes the answer to say what we are going to be is a lot easier to say what we're not going to be. And you see that discipline, I think, with some of the super apps that you're talking about. So, Neri, just build on that. So, Talk about what some of the things you see or do um, based on some of the great activity you've actually done in terms of what, what pulls the customer in, but also what pulls the customer out. Absolutely. So I, I'm glad you brought this up because we've had the super app now for about a couple of years, but obviously that's still in very early stage and we've been doing lots of testing and, and learning. And initially it was quite tempting to say, let's just enable anyone to to plug in and maybe create their own mini app within our app. And then we'll have this huge um, you know, array of products and services that our customers will be able to use. Um, and that's to some extent a bit wishful thinking. One, because if you actually want to create really good services, um, it requires lots of resources, lots of integration, um, and it's very difficult to have quality and quantity. Uh, and secondly, because actually some services, people don't really expect them to be available in a, in a banking app. Um, there are some services that in the customer's mind are more adjacent and they would make more sense. And that's what we call now lifestyle. So again, restaurant booking, travel, uh, cinema tickets, um, things like that. But would, do you really need to go to your banking app to book a hair appointment? Or do you need to go to your banking app to buy some cosmetics? It's less obvious to the customer's yeah. mind. And so actually, over time, we're realizing that there are some categories where it really makes sense to double down and make sure that that mini app within the super app is really great. And for example, travel is one where we've had, really, I would say, really good success because now about a third of all the travel expenditures of Tink of customers happens within the super app. So that's one case where a lot of the penetration has been achieved. But then you have other ones where the funnel, and by the end, you know, by the time the customer gets to that mini app and makes a transaction, the funnel is so narrow at the bottom that it actually didn't make sense to invest the resources to, um, to include that service in the super app. And that's a really good exercise to do because, again, to your point about deciding what you want and don't want to be, we've decided we want to be a financial ecosystem with lifestyle and adjacent services. Yeah. But we don't want to go into taxi. We don't want to go into build an e-commerce platform. We have our area of expertise. We can execute there and create amazing products in that particular niche. Um, and that's where we're going to stick to. Yeah, and that comes back to clarity of purpose again, Neri. But I think what I'm also seeing and what I love about how you're targeting that is just because you can doesn't also mean you should. So your examples there of really understanding where the customer is migrating to within that ecosystem is really important, and that probably changes. Um, Jason, just talk to me about where are we seeing this done well and what are the blockers uh, geographically of why they're not in certain areas? What do you see the barriers 
to moving forward here? Well, I guess we're seeing it best in the East. We're seeing it with, uh, and if we're not talking WeChat, Alipay, then I guess you point towards Grab um, as a a company that started with taxes and moved into adjacencies. I think Neri's Neri's nailed it there, that adjacencies and where are we moving to next? How do we scale out? But also knowing where the boundaries are to that uh, is the key to to that going forward. Um, I think it's interesting that the, the people who are doing this well uh, Tinkoff uh, put aside um, are not financial services because they're not tied to a net interest margin, fees and charges business model. They know that digital services, whether it's freemium, p- premium, ad supported subscriptions, you know, uh, ad, you know, a, a variety of other uh, revenue streams can be can be grown from these agencies. And I think that's where perhaps financial services is so stuck with the way yeah. we make money is we lend deposits that actually the, the adjacent services you can do, you know, great things on. I think you, you only have to look at what um, you know, Google and Facebook have done with ad platforms and say, well, that's great for people searching things, but people buying things, that's a whole different set of information around which rewards, offers, you know, affiliate fees can really be developed. And um, I know Chad West at Revolut has spoken about the direction they're going with that, which is great for end customers and great for the for the business model. Yeah, it's a really exciting one, actually, but that clarity of purpose. I mean, Neri, think I've done some incredible stuff in this space, and you've talked about what some of the areas that you see customers valuing. Who are you looking to and thinking, actually, who's doing this really well? So we look predominantly East. Yeah. Um, as, as Jason said, I would say that Russia is actually a very vibrant uh, super app scene. Uh, and unlike a lot of other countries, a lot of these ecosystems and super apps are actually coming out of financial services companies. So think of being one example, Sparebank, uh, Russia's largest bank, uh, being the other example, building an ecosystem around their customer base. And I think function of the fact that the, the, the banks and the financial services companies realized very early on that if they wanted to compete for the customer's time and customer's attention, they will need to build tech capabilities and digital capabilities. And Russia also offers a lot of tech talent. And so from the very beginning, we were a technology company with a banking license. Sparebank very early on in their journey realized that you know they had to build out this um, digital capability. And so they've been able to hire lots of really good talent that actually ends up building these products and services. Um, and then you have the tech companies that are also coming into the space from different angles. So you've got Yandex coming in from uh, search and, and uh, taxi. Uh, uh, you've got MailRU coming in from the social media. So you're actually seeing it come from many different Parts. And I think at the end of the day, it boils down to the corporate DNA and what kind of talent you can you can bring in to actually develop those services. It doesn't necessarily matter as much which service you come from. So just in the last uh, 90 or so seconds. So do you think the age of the super app is here? Have we answered that clearly enough? So I don't. So I, before before uh, Neri comes with the uh, the it definitely is and Tinkoff have built it. I'm going to say no. That or not the way people think about it. Sure. The, you know the era of an infinite supermarket where you can do anything on my app. I just don't think fits. I think like social media where you might use Facebook to talk to your family, LinkedIn to talk to your professional um, friends, Twitter to the world. There are particular customer contexts that fit yeah. within that app. 
especially because it's difficult to fit too many services and too many things in one app without it being confused. So I think that um, that, that we are going to see uh, aggregation around particular customer contexts and it's not going to be an app for pocket money and an app for you know group spending. Those belong within something of a certain size, um, but it's not going to be you know the infinite supermarket. Neri, I think it will be a spectrum depending on the region. Um, so again, I think at the one end you'll have the Asian example where everything is concentrated around a very really a couple of apps. And in the West, my bet it would be that it will be more fragmented around the various use cases that people have got yeah. accustomed to using. In Russia, I think it will be something in between. And that's why we're betting on a super app that's focused on financial and lifestyle, but not necessarily something that will cover everything. Yeah, and we're back to actually these panels become really connected when you heard about Sarah and Dan talking about really being clear on that customer expectation. You guys have really touched on that purpose, the alignment of talent, and then the culture and behavior you want to drive within the organization, but very much organized around customer context. Um, great. So thank you both. Um, I really enjoyed that one, actually. So I don't think it's here either. Um, so, But I was just waiting to see where, where we were going. And it's good to get a different perspective. So thank you both. Really appreciated your views. So uh, we're then going to jump into the third panel. So thanks, Jason. And thanks, Neri. So without further ado, and this is something that I'm really quite interested in, actually, is we're going to invite David back and Janine, who I work with in my Innovate Finance role, actually. So it's great to have David, as always, and Janine to give us their perspective on what are or will be the new business models coming out. This is something that I think we grapple with a little bit, actually. Um, so I'm interested in both of your views uh, on, on what is coming or will be coming. And let's put both lenses on that as we drive this one out. So Janine, do you want to kick us off this time? Yeah, absolutely. And Lua, I, I think it's, uh, it's great to see you both, by the way. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's a tough one. Uh, and I was thinking about how to answer this question. But when I look to see essentially what's on the horizon, in terms of new business models, I feel like they evolve either because there's a pain point or a specific challenge, which leads to a market demand in the industry, or uh, there is really a convergence of two different sectors. And then there are affiliated uh, data sets that come together as well. So if you take that as essentially a starting point, I think that in the coming months and years, we will most definitely see a lot of new changes around and new business models around the idea of financial health and financial wellness, particularly in a post-COVID environment. I think we haven't, for example, really seen the use of big data and AI be fully harnessed when it comes to lending decisions or in sure tech as well. And then on the flip side of that, in terms both of a pain point, but also of two sectors essentially converging, I think there is a real opportunity right now to look at the role that fintech can play in solving some questions around ESG. So I feel like we will see a lot of new models uh, rising in the next couple of months and years that support companies, be those larger incorporations or even smaller SMEs, at measuring and understanding their impact uh, on their ESG goals or really measuring their carbon footprint as well. That's a great kickoff, Janine. Thank you. Um, David, what's your thoughts? 
I don't know what to add to that, really. I, like, <laughs> that, that, I, I agree with everything she said, really. Uh, I, I think the, I mean, the interesting thing, I guess we're, we're at a funny place when it comes to financial services, because, um, I mean, I think we've seen in other industries, we've seen, uh, you know, whether it's the, you know, the media industry or whether it's newspapers or any others, when they really embrace digital, actually the business models start to shift as well. So obviously, you know, Spotify moving to a more of a subscription, all you can eat kind of capability. We haven't really sort of seen that in financial services. You know, very often, particularly in retail, we're still stuck in sort of punitive charges that are, you know, taxing people when they go into overdrafts and all different types of things. It's it's almost if you use the product in the way that you would want to use the product, then you get slightly more heavily penalized. Um, I really agree with what Ginny was saying around ESG. I think uh, quite often, um, I think much more frequently today, because I think the, the sort of alignment of business is able to, to sort of do good for themselves and do good for the environment and do good for their customers. That sort of alignment of all of the stars is is really sort of happening now. So, and actually, uh, you know, the more and more people make decisions based on, you know, organizations that sort of represent them a little bit more, then uh, I think we'll see more and more and more of it. But I think the business model in any industry is always the thing that people cling on to for as long as they can because often it's the thing that made them successful in the first place which uh, I mean it's a it's a difficult drug to get off isn't it it is it's quite interesting as well it's that intuitive we know we need to change but you hang on to dear life of it because it's the thing that got you to that point um Janine talk to me about because you you've you've kind of delayed some things already um which is really helpful um I want to start with the bottom and kind of come back up a little bit so you talked about the role fintech can play talk to me about that what are you seeing or what are your thoughts around what role can fintech play yeah i mean obviously coming from innovate finance i believe probably a very very big one if not the biggest one but i think we're in a position now where you know seeing the last year and a half with covid there has been a bigger focus on the role that technology plays in all areas of our lives but particularly when it comes to financial services And the incumbents, while they are very open to innovation and they can look to innovate as well, they can't necessarily innovate as quickly as we'll see the fintechs because they just are, by their nature, very nimble, very quick to adjust, pivot, etc. So we we are really seeing the innovation come from the fintech angle. um, And we want to, to foster and see some partnerships to enable that to also happen at scale. Uh, And so I know there's been a lot of work coming out of the Khalifa review, for example, in terms of recommendations where we can try and push that appetite for collaboration forward and also create a regulatory framework that facilitates that collaboration, because quite often that's one of the... uh, sort of stopping points between partnerships happen as well. Uh, But I think it's absolutely, absolutely critical role, Lou, to to answer your question. Yeah. And then, David, what are some of the blockers? Because it's one we talk about all the time, isn't it? The role fintech can play, the role innovation can play. And we're still talking about it quite some time on. So uh, is it shifting? Is it getting better? Are we seeing greater degrees of partnering, collaboration? Is that happening or do you still see that's too slow? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it. I think it is happening. We are seeing some changes. You know, we are seeing some of the subscription things that some of the fintechs are doing, changing how this, you know, the industry is working. And you know, actually, we're seeing some of the big organisations having to respond to that in the way that they they would need to as well. You know, the the bundling of products in the way that they they should do. Yeah. I think the the point that was sort of in the cycle, really. I mean, we've seen this big unbundling through all of the different slices of fintech, sort of picking off different pieces. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to see. I think 
think over the next sort of three to four years, as organizations come back together to, you know, pull these things back into you, as you said, Lou, earlier on, the, the sort of context in the which that consumers actually use them, then I, I think that's interesting to see how those things get squeezed all the way through the mix. Uh, do you know what? I really think the interesting thing on the big organization side of things is, is kind of keeping up with this as well, because, you know, one thing for sure, when the product creation and distribution start to get yeah. separated in terms yeah. of that, that, Piece, then you know pure economics says that everybody's going to get squeezed in that value chain so you know the, the need then for ridiculously efficient technology ridiculously efficient process you know very cost efficient change uh, capability is going to be you know harder and harder than ever so i really yeah. think that will lead to you know, a, a kind of a, a bit of a war on many fronts. And and really, I mean, uh, COVID is, as we've sort of touched on a little bit earlier on, been a big accelerant for that, right? We've uh, we've definitely seen, uh, you know, whether the, the king is actually wearing clothes or not uh, during this period with regards to, you know, has all of the digital transformations that we've seen in organizations really paid off yet? Um, yeah. But all of this is leading up to just great impetus for change, isn't it? It is. What I love about all of these panels today is that, because we keep coming back to that customer context. We keep coming back to, and I know, David, you talk about this all the time, that clarity of purpose, aligned talent, the behavior and culture, because you'll always get a culture. It's just whether it's the one that you intended. And I think you start to see in all of these things, they're only as successful when you start to line those up. And I know you talk passionately about those things. Um, Janine, I just want to also unpack a little bit because you started to talk about the alignment of data yeah. uh, into decisioning uh, and you, you you talked about lending. You've also gone into the regulatory framework and some of the, which I, I actually think the Khalifa review strengthens even further. Uh, but I think where where do you see that going? What And I, I think we've seen where it doesn't work, unfortunately, as well through the pandemic. So what are your thoughts there? In in terms of the the data sets, or yeah, well, yeah. I think, and I'm not sure if this is um, sort of direct, but one thing which I find quite interesting is when we think about embedded finance and where that's also going. Uh, looking at sort of the different data sets that we'll be dealing with in terms of when we talk to the retailers, et cetera, and how that will be used on risk management or on risk decision making, I think that's quite an interesting area where we see almost an evolving. Um, model happening in that space as well. Yeah. Um, David, you said you agreed with some of the points that Janine laid out at the start, and particularly around financial health. And actually, you also started to touch on social purpose um, and actually having an opinion on some of those things, uh, which I think customers now look to, actually. Whether they agree with the opinion is different, but actually people want to know what you stand for. What business models or what things are you seeing coming out in that area now and or potentially in the future yeah i mean I, I think it's i think it's all the way through the chain i don't i don't think it's just um i don't think it's just how people's products make money you know with regards to yeah. you know uh, yeah it definitely is when it comes to sort of esg things and where funds are spending it but i think it comes down to people want to buy products that sort of feel and represent them and that's you know the Office, yeah. office politics to uh, to everything all the way through the, the the structure of it and and for me I think that comes down to 
uh, you know, really we've got customers have got real choice now, you know, like actually the the buyer behavior, the buyer choice in the market is stronger than ever. And that really is because of the the level of competition that's at sort of coming into the space. And whether it's, you know, uh, retail banking or SME or insurance or whatever, then people really have choice now who they they put their money with to and with that said, they, then actually they really want brands and systems and, you know, things that really represent them all the way through the the piece. I mean, it's been such an interesting one. I, I was on a, a panel with a couple of big investment banks recently, and I sort of said, it's like, look, this is, this is sort of new to you. You know, you've sort of talked about it for like five or six years, and that's great, but now it makes money. It makes sense as well, doesn't it? So, uh, but we're finally at that point where the, you know, ethical investment is making greater returns than the non-ethical investment. And, uh, you know, whether it's Tom's shoes or, you know, BlackRock's uh, uh, funds, then, you know, people are definitely sort of voting with, uh, or at least vote clicking with their fingers now to make those things happen, for sure. Yeah, talk a bit more broadly, a few minutes to talk more broadly of fintech, because we do anchor still to, I know we touch on it, but it's still on the periphery. And I'm thinking about my own industry. If you think about it, we're quite uniquely placed around some of these purpose particularly when you think about what we're going through now with pandemics, climate, cyber, and we've touched on some of some of the concepts that sit behind there. But talk about what's emerging now or in the future within those broader fintech industries. Uh, I'm just trying to stretch everybody more to stop talking about just the retail uh, banks and uh, and the kind of like some of the things that we tend to, to focus on. So Janine, do you want to kick us off there in some of the broader things? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we're going to see a lot of change in the asset management industry. Yeah. Um, and and we, we've already seen that in terms of the appetite coming through COVID and a recognition from an industry that's been, I would say, traditionally more hesitant to change. Um, but we've also seen some real movement on the partnerships front as well, as in terms of democratizing investments. So I think there was the the... What was it, in May of last year, uh, the partnership between Scalable Capital and Barclays in terms of enabling individuals that had less than or only 5,000 as a minimum to actually invest. So I do think we're going to see technology being used essentially as a platform to help to democratize that opportunity in the, in the asset management space as well. Interesting. David, your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's I think it's really interesting. I think as an industry, um, I mean, we, we sort of – we say this quite frequently to people. I mean, we're, it's called financial services, right? It should be a service. Uh, I, I think the odd thing is over a, a, a bizarre period of time, uh, we've really sort of turned to a product industry. You know, it's about selling a, you know, a motor insurance policy or a retail account or an investment or whatever. And really most of the customer benefit is about owning the product, not buying the product. So I think this is where more and more people are spending time really to understand actually how can they reinforce the messages, you know, the fact that you made a good decision when you chose our company or the fact that actually we're here for you when, you know, the shit hits the fan or that you're, you know, you really need security, you need safety, you need support or you need some advice. Uh, and that's where I, I, I really think the industry moves back to a, a service-based industry, which is kind of the safety net for many people. You know, financial services is the a real, you know, bedrock of society. And actually, if we get that right, then everybody's lives are better off. So, so for me, I, that's definitely where I see everything going is not just in retail banking, but in SME banking, in investment banking, in insurance and every walk of insurance. Um, for me, it's all about services. Yeah, I agree. I think it's 
again, it gets connected back to the conversations we've been having tonight around, you know, even if you start thinking about those self-forming ink potentially or those super apps in financial services and making it easy for the customer to navigate through all of that, and which takes us back to some of the stuff that Jason, again, and yourself, David and Janine have been talking about that customer context. Um, so just give me a view of who's doing this well. Where are you looking to and who are you seeing who's doing some stuff well? Janine, you sighed then, <laughs> so I'm going to come to you well, first. I, I think I would say fintechs in general, probably, in terms of in terms of giving, uh, putting the customer back at the center of the proposition and really refocusing on that bespoke engagement. Um, but, I mean, there are loads, and we are, we are seeing some really successful movements by some of the incumbents as well, uh, especially when they look to create some of that collaboration or innovate internally, too. I don't know if there's specific names. I don't know, David, if you want to chip in some specific names on the end. Yeah, I'd, I'd say it's really difficult, right? And if, and if anything, um, I'd say the, the rise of, you know, where we've seen sort of fintech really struggle. I mean, often they've had to go back to more traditional business models to, to really yeah. get to grips with what's happening. Because at the end of the day, I mean, it, it's consumers have to be ready to consume these things in the way that people want to to, to push them forward. But, you know, Love we that. have seen many, many more bundles, but um, but no, it's definitely a challenge, but one that I think the whole industry is facing into. Yeah, and I, but it comes back to that consumer context. Yes. And also some of the things that Neri was talking about, just because you can doesn't mean you should. So are they ready to consume? And I think it's that's what I say. I think it's been very clever how the agenda's been pulled together for tonight because they get connected up. But it comes back to, and apologies uh, for repeating it again, but it does come back to that clarity of purpose, yes. aligned talent and the behaviour and culture that you intend. Because I think you can do anything when you start to drive those three things in a connected way. And um, look, we're out of time and I could talk to both of you uh, all day. Uh, I always learn something. Uh, which I think is is actually what these things are about, even if it's just one thing that you take away. So thank you. And thank you for inviting me along this evening. I really enjoyed uh, chatting to the various panellists and also getting the different views. So uh, thank you both and thank you very much. No worries at all. It was uh, fantastic. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. I'm pretty sure that's a Jurassic Park quote, isn't it, Lou? So like, I think on that note, it's a it's a brilliant place to end it. But uh, Lou, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for, for running the show. You've been absolutely brilliant today. Um, before, you, before you leave us, tell us a little bit more. Where can people find out more about you and the work you're doing at Lloyd's? And I know you're recruiting really heavily for your team as well at the moment, aren't you? So tell yeah. people where people can, can jump on board. Thanks, David. So uh, we launched our strategy uh, on the 5th of November last year. So we're actually very public in what we're doing, which is the right thing, but also always a bit scary as well. Uh, and uh, we are exactly where we should be on our plan, which is also brilliant news. And we presented that as well to our council today. Um, so it's been a good day. And um, come and find us on futureat.lloyds.com. You'll see all the things we're doing. Uh, we'll also see how we're putting Lloyd to cross those end-to-end -end journeys and that customer context and also our research team, which, David, we, we know that we partner with you guys and we hopefully will continue to do that as we go through. And then secondly, if you're interested, once you've had a look at what the things that we're doing, you can also see all we have advertised there as well. So please do reach out and you'll also know if people reach out to me, I always respond back. Uh, so please do reach out if you're interested or you want to find out more. And thanks again for inviting me along. 
No worries at all. Thank you very much, Lou. Uh, that wraps up our show for the, today. I'm afraid that our fourth digital fintech insider after dark. This will this pandemic never end, right? When we can get back together and do all of this face to face. But uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we hope you'll join us for the roundtable discussions to carry on the conversation afterwards. Uh, thank you so much to our guests for and our amazing moderator, Lou Smith, of course. And as for me, well, you can find me at David Breer over on Twitter. Thank you to our media and marketing team for pulling this event together. If you want to stay up to date with all the content, follow at Fintech Insider on Twitter, 11FS on YouTube. And I think we're pretty much on every social media channel at that stage, but that will help you keep up and abreast of all the other events that we'll be putting on. Thanks very much, everybody. Good night.